It may be the most daring crime in American history. Exception on one wire service, master. For all we know, he's been here. You know, walked in, had a beer, and walked out. Just to see what the place was 36 like. 36 passengers got off the jetliner in Seattle last night, left aboard four crew members and the hijacker, carrying a plane briefcase which he told the crew held explosives. Authorities began their search here, thinking the hijacker may have jumped off Nobody the Nobody really knew where he bailed out, where he landed, or even if he's Have you been told by the FBI not to discuss? Thousands of leads, all dead Somewhere, end. Somewhere, the hijacker parachuted away with the Hundreds money. of troops combed the woods near Woodland. He made me feel very sure that we had a very real and horrifying threat. This is the tie we got the DNA from. A person jumped from an airplane uh, with this stolen money tied around his waist and not know anything about it. America's only unsolved skyjacking. Someone has information, 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 information. I'm Michael Washburn. It's the week of Thanksgiving 2021. Thank you for joining me for this Reading the Globe special edition, The D.B. Cooper Mystery at 50. Presented by Audio Hopper. Part 1. I'll do the job. On November 24, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving, a man walks into the terminal at Portland International Airport. Giving his name as Dan Cooper, he pays with cash for a seat on a Northwest Orient Airlines Boeing 727 jet scheduled to make the quick flight from Portland up to Seattle. Flight 305 has barely gotten into the air when Cooper, whom witnesses will recall as a well-dressed, polite man in his 40s, orders a bourbon and soda. He then passes a handwritten note to flight attendant Florence Schaffner. Assuming that the passenger is trying to pick her up and has written his phone number on the piece of paper, she sticks it in a pocket without reading it and tries to carry on with her duties. This prompts the passenger to call out to her, warning that she had better read the note because he has a bomb with him. Reading the note, Schaffner sees that the passenger is a hijacker with a set of clearly stated demands. He wants four parachutes and $200,000 in cash, or, to use his phrase, negotiable American currency. The plane is to take him to Mexico. If the authorities do not meet his demands, the note warns, I'll do the job. At his request, Flight attendant Tina Mucklow comes and sits next to the passenger, who opens a briefcase to reveal what look like strung-together explosives and a detonator. His threat appears to be no bluff. She relays the demands to the pilots and other crew. The airline, police, and FBI quickly get involved on the ground. Frightened that the passenger may make good on his threat to do the job, they arrange to draw on reserves of cash stockpiled in Seattle in anticipation of a hijacking. Through the intermediary of the Boeing's crew, negotiations take place between the passenger and the authorities. They will meet his demands for the money and parachutes, but the plane cannot fly directly to Mexico without taking on more fuel. It must land in Seattle, at which point Cooper will release the 36 other passengers and most of the crew and will get what he has demanded. Then the plane will proceed to Reno for refueling and will continue on to Mexico. If all goes as agreed, there will be no need for him to do the job. According to the accounts of Schaffner and Mucklow, this Dan Cooper is a pretty nice guy, as hijackers go. He is mild-mannered and does not curse or speak abusively. Other than his demands and his threat to blow up the plane if they go unmet, he comes across like any number of middle-aged men they have served. When the plane lands in Seattle, both Cooper and the authorities make good on their promises. All the other passengers and all but four of the crew deplane. 
Cooper receives four parachutes and a satchel holding $200,000 in cash. How fortunate that there was money set aside in Seattle in anticipation of a crisis that might involve a large ransom. But it seems odd that someone could get onto a plane without proving his identity or passing through screening, carrying virtually whatever he likes on board with him. Although terrorists, criminals, and emotionally disturbed passengers have been attempting and sometimes pulling off attacks and hijackings for years now in the Middle East, Europe, and North America, security in November 1971 is still minimal. The world really is a different place from what later generations will come to know. The plane takes off again. Cooper gets flight attendant Mucklow to show him how to open the Boeing's aft stairs before ordering all the remaining crew to confine themselves in the cockpit. Around 8 p.m., the aft stairs of the plane open. At an unknown time, at a point somewhere between Seattle and Reno, the passenger jumps out of the plane with the money and into popular lore as the mystery man behind the only unsolved commercial airline hijacking in history. Welcome to the D.B. Cooper Mystery at 50. A man calling himself D.B. Cooper hijacked a plane, demanded $200,000 in cash, plus four parachutes. And then he jumped off the plane somewhere in the mountains of Washington State. Stay, 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 stay. Part 2. The Enduring Fascination. For some people, the foregoing facts are a shocking and incredible tale. For others, they are a rote summary of the few things in the D.B. Cooper case on which everyone agrees. It is a case that has obsessed professional and amateur sleuths around the world and spawned books, articles, movies, podcasts, blogs, online discussions, and an annual gathering in Oregon where people with a direct personal connection to the case share their insights with fans and sleuths of all ages and backgrounds. They discuss and argue about who the mystery man was, where he went, and whether he could be alive. People can't stop thinking about the case and the enigmatic figure at the center of it. We may imagine the Cooper craze to be something recent, but the fascination set in early. Life Magazine's edition of June 16, 1972 features, on its front cover, a young woman using a hula hoop. The issue's cover story is about 1950s nostalgia. But one finds, on page 86 of this issue of Life, an article about the D.B. Cooper case, the hijacker who vanished into thin air, complete with black and white photos of the plane, the composite sketch of Cooper, the woods where some believe he touched down, and a local resident. The article informs us that only a matter of weeks after the hijacking, merchants were hawking t-shirts and bumper stickers with Cooper as their theme. It mentions that two con men swindled a journalist out of $30,000 with an offer of an interview with the hijacker, and that an underground Seattle newspaper even ran an interview with D.B. Cooper, quickly exposed as fake. In a matter of months, the incident had entered Pacific Northwest lore. The Life magazine article details how 300 Army troops fanned out through the wilds of the Pacific Northwest in the aftermath of the hijacking, knocking on doors and questioning locals about anything unusual they might have seen or heard on or around Thanksgiving 1971. The police, FBI, and Army took the incident seriously. As nascent as airline security was at the time, they may have meant to send a forceful message about the consequences of hijackings and extortions. 
The Life article details hostility that arose between the soldiers and the people through whose land the troops cut, looking for the fugitive. Locals did not welcome the disruptions that the arrival of 300 soldiers caused. A horse had vanished for three days, and two cows got so scared at the incursion that they ran themselves to death, the article tells us. The reader senses that it must have been jarring for the people of the area to receive such an influx of troops, in whose eyes every home, mom-and-pop store, church, bar, restaurant, and thrift shop might have been harboring a fugitive from the FBI. Sensitivity to certain issues ran high in America at the time. The Kent State shootings of May 1970 were still very much on some people's minds. These events in the wilds of the Northwest foretell, in a way, the 1981 Walter Hill movie Southern Comfort, in which a group of raw young National Guardsmen tangle with locals in the bayous of Louisiana. You might even ask whether the Cooper case and its ramifications might have inspired director Walter Hill to make his gripping, violent film about the tensions between soldiers and a quiet community whose history and ways outsiders fail to comprehend, between citizens and state, between unorganized and organized force. The whole D.B. Cooper thing was an inside job. It, it is bewildering that they lost that piece of evidence. Or I think the documentation says that they threw it's it away. Bad, but it's Fingers impressive. Yeah. Like what he I has mean, done. the fact that he hasn't hurt anybody makes him yeah, an anti-hero. Yeah, like weird traces of metals on him that were only used in, like, manufacturing places, so they thought The town of Ariel comes alive Saturday with its annual D.B. Cooper party, complete with buffalo stew. They hope this year he'll come out of hiding if he's still alive and join in the fun. Part 3. A Few Good Leads The real question mark here, of course, is Dan Cooper, who he was and what happened to him. Life's cover story is about 1950s nostalgia, but it's the Cooper mystery that people can't get out of their heads, that people turn to again and again with a new theory or idea or scintilla of evidence, real or imagined, in mind. Who was the hijacker? In point of fact, he never actually used the name D.B. Cooper. That name has lodged in the popular mind through the error of a newspaper reporter who repeated in an article the name of an Oregon man whom the police questioned and then quickly ruled out as a suspect. The name of that momentary person of interest came to replace the one that the hijacker used to buy his ticket in Portland. Unfortunately for the investigation, Cooper barely left anything on the Boeing, not even the handwritten note relaying his demands. Though, of course, the situation was highly stressful, how one wishes that when Cooper asked for the note back, a bit of quick thinking had come into play. The stewardess could have told him, Hey, I'm so sorry, I dropped it into the toilet in the lavatory. She could, then, have kept it on her person or even conceivably have flushed it away. The authorities could later have recovered the note from the plane's septic tank. Better some evidence than none at all. But that is not quite true. There is physical evidence. Cooper did leave behind his clip-on tie and pin, a key piece of evidence about which more a bit later. People have wondered, dreamt, guessed, searched, investigated, and argued for half a century about Cooper's identity. Some think that he may have had a military or an aviation background, given a remark he made as the plane neared Seattle about the proximity of McCord Air Force Base a fact that most people in the general population did not know. Others speculate that Cooper may have been Canadian, given that he spoke English without a trace of a New York or Boston or Philly or Southern or other regional American accent. 
that Dan Cooper was the name of a parachutist in a Belgian comic book sold in Canada, and that the hijacker used the curious phrase, negotiable American currency, which is not how Americans typically refer to money. There are those who find it highly unlikely that Cooper survived the jump from the aft stairs of the Boeing 727. He leapt from the plane into 200 mile an hour winds, wearing a business suit, a raincoat, and a pair of loafers. The plane flew over the Pacific Northwest wilderness in the late fall. These are conditions in which skydiving instructors would warn you never to make a jump. Even if he made it to the ground alive, you have to wonder where he could have gone, dressed as he was, without provisions or shelter. Some think that wild animals might have come and eaten Cooper. But, the Cooper enthusiasts are quick to reply, that raises the question of what happened to the chute. Even if animals came to eat him, someone, somewhere, would have found the chute or remnants of it. In February 1980, an 8-year-old boy, Brian Ingram, did find a small amount of the ransom money, about $3,000, on the banks of the Columbia River near Vancouver, Washington. Here is a nod to the role of chance and luck in human affairs. The boy discovered, by accident, something that parties of adults have desperately tried in vain for years to track down, namely physical evidence directly related to the case. Then the Dwayne Ingram family entered the picture last February. I was going to build a fire, and I had some wood in my arm, and I got ready to set it down, and my son ran up and said, wait a minute, Daddy. So he raked uh, a place out in the sand there, and there it was. It kind of tumbled up on the top. What his young son found was part of Cooper's loot, badly decomposed in bundles, still in the same order when packed nine years ago. The Army Corps of Engineers had dredged the Columbia River here in 1974. The loot had been on the bottom, washed downstream over a three-and-a-half-year period, and now on shore, where FBI agents combed the sand like archaeologists. All they found was $5,800, and no sign of D.B. Cooper. Part 4. Persons of Interest Last year, director John Dower made an ambitious effort to explore the case in depth and bring elusive facts to light in his HBO documentary, The Mystery of D.B. Cooper. This film weaves together a number of strands of the decades-long investigation and distills information about a few of the likely suspects into a gripping narrative. In this 2020 release, Dower juxtaposes interviews of Cooper sleuths and friends and relatives of the suspects with haunting shots of the Pacific Northwest wilderness in the cold season. The suspects who come in for scrutiny here are Richard Floyd McCoy, Dwayne Weber, Barbara Dayton, and L.D. Cooper. The documentary reminds us that Richard McCoy had a record of bank robbery and jailbreaks and in April 1972, he carried out a hijacking using a modus operandi highly similar to that of the Cooper incident, taking $500,000. Some call it a copycat crime and consider McCoy a prime suspect in the original hijacking. As for Dwayne Weber, in Dower's telling, his widow, Joe Weber, claims that Dwayne blurted out to her on his deathbed that he was D.B. Cooper. She also points to an array of circumstantial evidence, including Duane's having bought cars with cash shortly after the November 1971 incident. His ownership of a copy of Soldier of Fortune magazine featuring an image of a man bailing out of a plane and an alleged claim to have tossed a sack full of money into a river upstream from the February 1985. According to the documentary, Barbara Dayton the first known transgender person in Washington state also reportedly confessed to a couple who were friends with her that she was D.B. Cooper. 
The couple, Ron and Pat Foreman, live not far from where the incident occurred and claim to have first met Dayton at a local airfield where she practiced flying a small plane on weekends. L.D. Cooper's connection to the case, in the documentary's telling, has to do with a claim made by his niece, Marla Cooper, that she once asked her father why L.D. was chronically absent from family gatherings, and that her father replied that L.D. was hiding from the authorities. When Marla asked why he might be hiding, the father reportedly replied, Don't you remember? He hijacked that airplane. Near the end of his documentary, Dower poses the same question to each of the witnesses he has interviewed. And they all affirm, not that they believe, but that they know the person they've singled out was D.B. Cooper. I gave the guy a ride home. I knew it right then. He doesn't knew when too much. When he died, we were best well, friends. I'm certain he was my uncle. The viewer may wonder whether challenging them on this point might lead to a fistfight. They are so emotional about it. In a sense, it seems Cooper is family for them. In the end, Dower's achievement here may not have been to make a case regarding the likeliest identity of D.B. Cooper, but rather to illustrate just how powerful the lore of the case is for people half a century later, and to illuminate their deep psychological attachment to the mystery. Some of us have stories about bumping into a celebrity while coming out of a hotel bathroom. For the people Dower has interviewed in The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, Nothing could lift them higher or give their lives more resonance than their personal connection to a mystery that has engrossed millions around the world for so many years. Cooper is family. You can't take away the identity I've assigned to my late colleague or husband or friend or uncle any more than you can change the identity of my actual parents, siblings, or spouse. In any high-profile case, the possibility of non-evidentiary factors coming to weigh on people's minds more than the actual evidence is a perennial danger. The cases for Dwayne Weber, Barbara Dayton, and L.D. Cooper being the hijacker all rely heavily on unverifiable claims made by people who knew these individuals years ago, or, to put it bluntly, on hearsay evidence. Certain of the recollections about Dayton and L.D. in particular seem suspect. Dayton told friends at dinner that she was the hijacker, but virtually everyone in the area where the foremans lived knew about the case, talked about it, had opinions about it, and, it is not hard to imagine, joked about it from time to time. Dayton's supposed admission sounds like just the kind of thing you might say to get a rise out of people after a few glasses of wine. So, with Marla Cooper's father telling her that her uncle was off the radar because he had hijacked that plane. Joe Weber may sincerely believe what she says about Dwayne Weber, but there are problems with him as a suspect. An article by Matt Morrison published on ScreenRant.com on December 3, 2020, Mystery of D.B. Cooper, what the HBO film left out about Richard Floyd McCoy, delves into the physical evidence, or what little of it there is. The article details how the FBI hid for years the fact that the Bureau had recovered the hijacker's black tie and tie pin after the Boeing 727 landed in Reno, and took DNA samples from the tie in order to test them against suspects in the case. According to Morrison's article, the FBI was able to rule out Dwayne Weber and L.D. Cooper based on the results of these tests. Morrison notes that Dower's documentary omits mention of these critical facts and instead gives weight to the emotional testimony of friends and relatives. A further point mentioned in Morrison's ScreenRant.com article has to do with the fact that the tie pin was of a kind favored by students at Brigham Young University, and that McCoy attended that school for a time before he enlisted in the military and went to Vietnam. 
and that he later re-enrolled prior to his arrest for the 1972 hijacking. According to Morrison, Richard Floyd McCoy stands as one of the few suspects not definitively ruled out by DNA evidence. But Morrison is quick to qualify this observation by admitting that McCoy's family has refused to come forward with articles of clothing that might be useful for further testing, and that McCoy's widow has taken legal action against the publishers of a 1991 book, D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy, that purports to present massive evidence implicating McCoy. I was horrified. I began to cry. I asked them what happened. They told me that they'd been in a car accident and I ran inside the house and I was spying on them from around the back of my grandmother's house. And I heard my uncle say, we did it. We, our money problems are over. We've hijacked an airplane. Part five, McCoy versus Rackstraw. Unlike some of the other suspects considered here, McCoy's criminal and sociopathic traits are a matter of record, though he was, of all things, a Sunday school teacher. Besides the 1972 hijacking, he had a record of bank robbery and jailbreaks and died in a gun battle with FBI agents in Virginia Beach in November 1974. One of the sources in Dower's documentary is the agent who shot McCoy dead. Dower presents compelling facts, including records of a phone call made from Las Vegas to McCoy's wife in Utah soon after the hijacking. This suggests that at precisely the time Cooper would have been on the ground somewhere in one of the western states, McCoy may well have been in a locale not far outside the Boeing's flight path or far from Cooper's jumping off point. The casinos of Vegas offered easy means for him to launder the cash. But McCoy insisted he was not Cooper. And the evidence here is admittedly circumstantial. McCoy's widow took successful legal action against the publishers of the 1991 book D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy. So, the case against McCoy is not airtight, and there is plenty of room for speculation about other suspects, including one who, curiously enough, gets short shrift in Dower's documentary. The documentary does not consider Robert Rackstraw as a prominent suspect. Rackstraw, who died in July 2019 in a condo in a San Diego suburb, was the focus of a 2016 documentary executive produced by Thomas Colbert and entitled D.B. Cooper, Case Closed? Writer and producer Colbert led an investigation into what Colbert came to view as the very high probability that Rackstraw was D.B. Cooper. The documentary follows the intensive efforts of Colbert and his team to trace Rackstraw's moves up to and on the date of the hijacking to piece together disparate pieces of evidence, and to coax admissions from Rackstraw himself. The obituary of Rackstraw, published in the San Diego Union-Tribune on July 9, 2019, presents a number of facts that might, at the very least, make you wonder about Rackstraw's character. Rackstraw was a high school dropout and Army veteran who racked up experience as a pilot in the Shah's Iran, the obituary notes. It mentions that the military kicked him out for instances of misconduct, he did jail time for writing bad checks, and he tried to fake his own death by crashing a rented plane. The obituary also tells us that a jury tried Rackstraw for the murder of his mom's third husband, but acquitted him. Are you the person who boarded a flight I just tell you, on November 24th, 1971? Don't play, don't, don't try and play Junior you, Dan Ryder. Are you D.B. Cooper? If you're D.B. Cooper, the world would want to know your story. Really. I would. So would the FBI and the secret indictment and Washington, Bob, you're a folk hero. Rackstraw may have been eccentric and sociopathic, but that does not make him D.B. Cooper. 
One of the most curious aspects of Colbert's undertaking comes across nine paragraphs down in the obituary, where it mentions a scene in the documentary in which Colbert offers Rackstraw $20,000 for rights to tell the story of Rackstraw as Cooper. You could hardly ask for a more blatant admission that Colbert wanted his own moment in the sun as the sleuth who solved an unsolvable crime and Colbert was willing to buy that status if necessary. In Colbert's documentary, he and his team meet with repeated frustration at the FBI's refusal to move on the evidence they bring to the Bureau's attention. From the FBI's viewpoint, the investigation over the decades has been exhaustive, and only some new physical evidence, like the shoot or the missing money, warrants taking action here. Colbert does not have that. Much of D.B. Cooper, case closed, dwells on Rackstraw's vague and inconsistent answers when asked point-blank if he is the hijacker. The viewer senses that Rackstraw thought this was getting to be a silly game, and he knew that neither an affirmation nor denial would make the pesky documentarians leave him alone. Colbert does not seem interested in the fact that witnesses describe the hijacker as a man in his mid-40s, and Rackstraw was 28 at the time of the incident. When the documentarians present Tina Mucklow with a contemporaneous image of Rackstraw, she does not just express uncertainty, but explicitly states that this is not the hijacker she sat next to on the plane for several hours. We still do not have proof beyond a reasonable doubt as to Cooper's identity, but of the prominent suspects, it is arguably Richard Floyd McCoy for whom the least exculpatory evidence exists. While Rackstraw was one of the original suspects, flight attendants on that hijacked plane were unable to identify him as D.B. Cooper. The FBI never explained why they stopped pursuing him, but Colbert still wants to know. So it appears one of the nation's most captivating unsolved mysteries may stay that way. Part 6 Cooper Forever. This hijacker, who bought his plane ticket using the name Dan Cooper, but who came through a reporter's error to be known in the popular mind as D.B. Cooper, embodied qualities that others share but cannot put into words. D.B. Cooper was a dangerous criminal. For some, he was also perhaps the embodiment of middle-class American manhood in an age when politically correct flagellation and the erosion of self-esteem were already underway. He was the disgruntled employee, the angry citizen who said, enough's enough. I've seen what loyalty to this way of life gets a man, and if that's what loyalty is worth, then no dare, no act of defiance is out of the question. He strapped on the satchel full of cash and lowered the rear stairs of the jet and jumped. He leapt right out into torrents of rain falling through the cosmos, grinning and laughing as the 200-mile-an-hour winds propelled him like a human bullet through the violence and chaos of the squall. And in his daring and reckless act, he took on a quality of Americanness, even as he fled from all the parts, all the components of his identity as a citizen. He pulled the cord and the chute bloomed against the night sky and carried him to a spot in the frozen landscape where no one really thought he could survive. Let there be no illusions about the heinousness and depravity of what this man did. He was a lunatic and a criminal, yet he cannot fail to fixate people around the world. They, too, hope in some shunned part of their psyche that if and when things become unbearable, the aft stairs will open and the winds will bear them away. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper.